Americans are very smart. You don't have to have a legal education to understand these issues. We are a smart, thoughtful people. We just have to give ourselves that space. Welcome to the Love Journalism Show. I'm your host, Darren Samuelson. Today, we're joined by a fellow member of the Substack writing community, the author of Civil Discourse with Joyce Vance. She's a former Obama-era U.S. attorney, currently a law professor and a legal analyst for MSNBC and NBC. Joyce, welcome to the Love Journalism Show. Thanks for having me. You have been monitoring all things Trump and the the legal swirl all around the former president. How's that been going? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it was certainly unintentional. You always expect that there will be a smooth transition of power. There, you know, clearly was one between Obama and Trump. And then it sort of went to hell in a handbasket pretty fast. And we've been on this roller coaster ever since. Hmm. Give me a sense of what it's like from your perspective. What's it like monitoring all of these cases? How much time has it taken up? Where are you going to find the information? Well, it's a lot of time, but it's it, it aligns with my academic work. I'm a scholar in democratic institutions, but also in criminal practice and criminal procedure. I can't imagine a better convergence of those two areas than watching the fallout from the Trump administration, right? I, I don't say that happily. Um, it has been an unpleasant era to study and to comment in. Um, but that said, I, I think one of the reasons that the public has been so appreciative of having former DOJ lawyers commenting publicly is because we can draw on our understanding of traditional legal practice and legal principles, our understanding of you know what goes on in the area of public corruption. Many of us who are former U.S. attorneys have handled public corruption dockets, and so we know what, you know, I, I hesitate to say the norms in public corruption, but the norms in public corruption are And we can appreciate the political elements at work and how completely unhinged what we've been watching for the last six years is. Um, So there are a lot of different sources, right? You read case law, you study the law, but you also look to history and to philosophy. And I'm a voracious reader, um, but I also think that I sometimes learn the most. I was teasing my students yesterday. I'm in the middle of um, a seminar in Democratic Institutions. And I tell them, you know, I teach this class so you can answer all the questions that I have that I can have answers to. And I think we learn so much by talking with others and thinking through the issues together. Americans are very smart. You don't have to have a legal education to understand these issues. We are a smart, thoughtful people. We just have to give ourselves that space. How's your relationship and perspective, you know, uh, on the media changed by being a blogger, by being a writer, by being someone who's tracking the stuff and, and publishing yourself? So um, I started life in 1985 as a young lawyer at a big law firm in Washington, D.C., and had the great good fortune to work for some partners who defended folks in the media from defamation um, charges. And so that to say my background has always been a pretty pro-press one. I think I was hardwired that way anyhow. You know, like so many of us, I wrote for my student newspaper in high school, thought that really mattered a lot, was interested in First Amendment law. I always retained that bias. And it's interesting when you go um, to a U.S. attorney's offices, you know, because there are such serious consequences for revealing grand jury investigations, Prosecutors can and have been prosecuted in my state for for, um, even inadvertent revelation of secret grand jury practice. 
there's just a real aversion to speaking to the press. We used to all try to get somebody else to do it. You know, if you had a case that was newsworthy, you wanted to get the U.S. attorney to go talk. You'd say, oh, no, boss, you, you go ahead and do that. I, I don't need to take your glory. Um, but as I, I became increasingly aware that there's a duality. Prosecutors can't talk about substance of cases. They should always talk about the process of how DOJ works. For instance, explaining why we don't talk to the press about the substance of cases. And so the first hire that I made as a U.S. attorney was actually a former print news person in Birmingham um, to run a press shop in my office, which was not met with happiness by many of my prosecutors. I thought it was important for us to think deliberately about when we could explain to the public what we were doing. The public, you know, we, we're not a private business. The public funds that work. They're entitled to know what they're getting for their money. And so those views animate my view of the press, which actually hasn't changed that much. I don't really consider myself. I'd, I'd love to be a journalist. I have journalism envy, but I am a legal analyst. Does it feel as, as you're writing day in and day out? I mean, there is deadline pressure. Uh, I'm sure you face. What is that? What is that like? Or how does the how does the deadline uh, affect your your daily work? Yeah, so I spent 10 years of my life as an appellate lawyer, actually ran the appellate division in my office before I became the U.S. attorney. So I know a thing or two about writing under deadline pressure. Um, but I'll tell you what the difference is, and, and this is a bargain that I've had to make with myself to be able to write on Substack and to write for MSNBC Daily and Cafe. I have to be willing to not polish every word. And as an appellate lawyer, that drives me absolutely insane. You know, I'm used to writing a 50-page brief and letting it marinate overnight and going back and looking at it and doing that for three or four days sharing it with friends. They read it. We talk about the arguments. Are they good? Am I saying too much here? You know, are the judges not going to need this 10 page discourse about black letter law? All of those things before you create a perfectly crafted um, typo free final project that goes to the court. Well, you don't do that when you're writing for Substack. You're, you're reacting, you're writing, um, you know, you're doing it in a couple of hours. That means that you have to be deep on the background. And, and that I think is, is what makes it possible is that 25 years as a DOJ lawyer means if I don't know the answers, I know where to find them quickly. But it's it's a much more um, hectic pace and it's it's challenging. And I have enormous respect for journalists. I remember um, sitting with Gene Robinson, who writes at the Post the day of the Kavanaugh hearings. And I don't know if you'll remember this, you know, Kavanaugh's up there to be the Supreme Court justice. There are allegations um, made by Christine Blasey Ford, that he has engaged in sexual assault. The morning part of that hearing goes very poorly for Justice Kavanaugh. And I think Gene goes off at lunch or at the break and writes his column and comes back and we sit down. And then Kavanaugh goes on that crazy, you know, aggressive, offensive. And at one point, Gene turns to me and says, well, there goes everything I just wrote. I'm going to have to completely redo my column. And it was the first time that I ever really thought about what the life of a journalist must be like and how challenging it is. Have you pre-written stories or pre-written blog posts or pre-written sub stacks with the expectation of something happening and then had to had to trash it? Um, no, because I have a great crystal ball. Um, <laughs> I very rarely pre-write. I will sometimes if there's a case coming up for argument in the Supreme Court where I want to go back and reread the briefs and, and the case law that's being cited in those briefs, I'll do all of that and I'll sort of write a summary sheet for myself, but very often that'll tally with my academic work and then I'll have that to pull on 
when argument takes place and goes, you know, completely unexpectedly, but at least you're prepared to talk about what happened and, and help people understand it. Mm. As a former sports writer myself, I can't tell you how many times I was writing stories covering a game and then, you know, something dramatically changes at the end. And then lo and behold, everything that you've done as well uh, goes out the window. I grew up as an LA fan. And although my dad, who I went to games with, really liked to send it out to the bitter end. Every once in a while, he'd be like, this game is done. Let's go. And you'd be, you know, out at the at the fabulous forum. You'd be out to the parking lot. And then you would just hear from inside the crowd start screaming. And you would have to go back in. I can't even begin to imagine what that must be like for a journalist. So you've got that perspective from being, you know, on the side of the room where the grand jury discussions are happening, where the prosecutors are making decisions about whether to indict. And, and now you're obviously you're not standing outside the room with the with the with the gaggle of reporters waiting for the, the news to break. But can you can you take us in to the you know, what's going on in the room in the Fannie Willis world or in the Jack Smith world right now as they're in there and they're obviously navigating all of the questions that they're they're dealing with? What are they thinking through? Let's talk just about Fannie Willis as we get approach up to the uh, the moment of uh, whether or not we're going to see indictments. What 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 kinds of discussions are happening right now? Grand jury practice is difficult and complicated, and because it happens in secret, prosecutors have a burden which virtually all prosecutors feel acutely um, to follow the rule and dot their eyes and and cross their t's. Occasionally, transcripts of the grand jury are released to defendants in certain kinds of challenges. That's extremely rare. Most this is the process show. Witnesses don't get to take um, their lawyers into the grand jury with them. They do testify under oath. So that said, there is a huge difference between state and federal grand jury practice. In fact, not all states use grand juries. There's a handful of states where there's no requirement that you indict through a, a grand jury. Prosecutors can just charge. Practice is different in every state. And something that I think we've established in the last eight or 10 months is that Georgia's practice is a little bit different. Um, it's unlike federal practice. It's different than Alabama grand jury practice in, in some regards, although maybe as a, a neighbor from a neighboring state, I, I may have a little bit better perspective on it. But here's the, the deal. Here's where Fonnie Willis is. She's done her investigative work. I might do that as a federal prosecutor in my regular grand jury, bringing witnesses in to, to testify in front of the grand jury. And you do that for a variety of different reasons. But primarily, sometimes you have to send somebody a subpoena and put them under oath to get them to testify. Sometimes they have to decide if they want to be a witness or a defendant. That can be facilitated by the grand jury. So this is what Willis used her investigative grand jury for, to compile her evidence, to do her groundwork. Now, and, and we don't know, you know, I guess she could have theoretically done it with one of her February grand juries. She could have gotten an indictments and sealed them. But now she's at the point where she will turn at some point to a regular grand jury and ask them to return indictments charging a number of people. Something that I don't think we've talked about enough in public discourse is she doesn't have to indict everybody all at once. Prosecutors will often indict just a couple of, of people, maybe folks that they want to flip as witnesses, people who need to see an actual grand jury indictment with their names on it. 
before they will think seriously about their future and consider it whether cooperation is in their best interests. Sometimes you do that with a few witnesses. Willis has got what looks to me like two separate grand juries here. She's got the fake slate of electors, a lot of internal Georgia politicians who she has issued target letters to. And then she's got this, um, I guess I would call it the election subversion conspiracy, Trump calling Raffensperger, Trump world folks change the count of the vote in Georgia. She could indict those as two separate cases. She could indict those at two separate times. We don't know who she'll indict. We don't know what charges she'll bring. This is what's happening in the grand jury. She does not have to present all of the evidence fresh. She can use, for instance, law enforcement witnesses as summary witnesses to explain the evidence to grand jurors. You're entitled to use hearsay in the grand jury. But she will have to give this grand jury enough because this is an extraordinary case to convince them that there is probable cause to indict whatever charges she's trying to bring. That's the standard in the grand jury, probable cause. And then the grand jurors will vote. Um, prosecutors will instruct them on the law. That's your responsibility as a prosecutor to explain the law, answer any questions grand jurors have, and then they vote. And if enough of them vote to indict, they will return what's called a true bill. So give us a sense, how long are we in for? Uh, how much or how long are you preparing to monitor uh, what's happening in Fulton County? Is this going to be years of potential uh, criminal proceedings ahead that are going to spill into 2024 in the presidential election? It'll spill at least into 2024. Look, here's the reality. Um, something else I tell my students in criminal law, you always think that the big game is the trial, but it's not. The big game is the appeal. Getting the conviction is only the first step. You know, then probably two levels. Sometimes um, that's a little bit different. Of appellate courts are going to consider whether the conviction should be uh, sustained on appeal, and so it goes on for a long time. Um, there are collateral challenges. There's what we call habeas litigation in some cases, so that can extend out the arena for appellate litigation. The reality is. That, that we know Trump's strategy in litigation is to file every last frivolous that's available to him because he has learned over time that if he can delay for long enough, sometimes things go away. So we'll see an early motion if, if Trump is indicted, right, which I don't want to take anything for granted about who she's going to indict or when she's going to indict which group of people. Um, but if Trump is indicted, he will file an early motion to dismiss the indictment. He will file a motion to remove the case to federal court. There will be a lot of litigation. We don't really know. We don't have a, a bellwether for how the Georgia state courts, elected judges in Georgia, um, will respond. So it'll be very interesting and full-time employment for a lot of journalists and legal analysts. And I hope the American people will be fully engaged. It will be justice in action. It'll be fascinating to watch it. Always, I mean, I've found as a reporter covering the, the Mueller investigation so many times, watching all of the different branches of government going at it against each other in federal court, seeing the, you know, the, the Justice Department suing the United States House of Representatives or the House of Representatives suing the Justice Department um, and the president being involved. It, it just it's fascinating to watch. But I guess I'm curious, do you see the Georgia case finding its way into federal court? You mentioned Trump potentially filing a motion to take the case to federal court. Uh, I would imagine this questions about whether even uh, a president of the United States is immune from state prosecution could find its way to the United States Supreme right. Court, too. Right. That 
And that's sort of the question that's involved in removal. It's not just for presidents, but federal employees have the ability to remove criminal cases in certain circumstances. My personal belief, having spent a ridiculous amount of time going down the rabbit hole and looking at the law, is that Trump is not entitled to remove his case to federal court. But for instance, in Fulton County, there are some um, uh, deputy US marshals who removed a criminal case brought against them in state court to federal court so that they could assert the immunity defenses. That's, I don't wanna say that it's common um, because it's not, but it's not something that never happens. I mean, there's a, you know, a case in, in Fulton County. Um, so that will be litigated. It will take time. There will be briefs. Um, you know, it's just, it's sort of a mess for a litigant who doesn't act in good faith. Let's talk about the, the federal investigations, the, the Jack Smith special counsel investigation. Uh, what's your sense on the timing on those and, and what we now know publicly? We have, uh, you know, a variety of people being brought in for uh, grand jury uh, questioning. Mike Pence, uh, I believe, is fighting and, and that is that is actively happening as we speak. Uh, What's your sense on where these the the special counsel uh, investigations are going? Are they on separate tracks? I guess maybe is my first question for you: the the January sixth case and the Mar-a-Lago documents case. It's hard to think that they wouldn't be on separate tracks. They're two separate cases. The only reason that they're combined at all is just because Merrick Garland, you know, wanted to get um, stuff involving a future presidential candidate off of his play out of concern that it could be viewed as political if he held on to it during the election season. Um, I, I think it's very hard to crystal ball where prosecutors are. And, and the reporting that we saw this week, first from the Washington Post, about the, um, let's just say discussions between prosecutors and agents about whether to execute a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago is a really good example of how things that look like they should move fast sometimes don't for prosecutors. You know, there's this reporting that when prosecutors were ready to execute a search warrant, the FBI was saying, not so fast, Kimasabi, you know, this is a former president. We can, and, and for whatever reason, I think we're about to learn a lot more about that. There was a period of months where the investigation was slow walked as this presumably went up through layers um, at DOJ and at the FBI before a resolution was reached and the search warrant was executed. So you can imagine that's just one example of the zillions of things that can delay your case as a prosecutor. A defense lawyer gets sick. A bank has a hard time finding records that you need and asks for an additional 30 days to comply with the subpoena. There is always stuff that makes it move slower than people looking at it from the outside believe it should be moving. So I would say Jack Smith will indict or not when he's been ready to. And I mean, we do then layer on top of it the political dynamics of a presidential campaign where the person under investigation is running for president. It doesn't seem like it's stopping Donald Trump from running for president, but how do you think ultimately these two different uh, trains collide or do they not collide? Look, as a prosecutor, I don't care very much, to be honest with you. Um, it, and we've all been in that situation where you've got a senator or a mayor, you know, American election cycles being what they are. If you are doing a public corruption case, which is what this essentially is, if you're doing a public corruption case, there's an election cycle that's about to abut your case. And that's why DOJ has the rule about going dark on overt steps in an investigation when you're too close. 
And the rest of the time, you got to go full speed ahead because you know that time is coming and the clock is ticking. Mm -hmm. To the extent that elections influence prosecutors, it's just that ticking clock in your mm -hmm. head. How do you think the feds are looking at the state case, the, the again, the Fulton case or even the Manhattan DA as they see these moving ahead and maybe an indictment coming sooner in, in the state case? Is there a I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of opinions, but give me a sense of if you're if, if you're in the federal government and you're watching a state case, are you relieved? Are you jealous? Are they your rivals? What's the sort of dynamics between the federal prosecutors and the state prosecutors, whether they're in Georgia or up in New York uh, City? It's a little bit mysterious. You know, for the first year that Merrick Garland was in office, there was a dearth of activity at DOJ on the January 6th, not, not on the people who overran the Capitol, but on the command and control level um, to the extent that, that you believe that there was one. And there were, you know, just a few, Preet Bharara and I on our podcast talked about this a lot. We were both very concerned that we didn't see any of those signs of progress happening um, and there were also people who said, oh, you know, DOJ is running silent and running deep. Well, as we now know, watching um, the investment ongoing, you can't run silent and deep because people get subpoenas and they're angry about getting subpoenas. And that spills over into the public. And typically, even if you don't know the full contours of an investigation, there are some tea leaves that can be read if you're used to, to reading those sorts of tea leaves. And there, there weren't any during the first year. And um we don't know why that is. We don't know maybe if there really was stuff going on that was so very hidden that we didn't see it. But at some point, it does become clear that DOJ decides it has to look at this stuff. And it's not on the same timeline as the January 6th committee. It's a little bit earlier, but it's maybe when it's apparent that there's going to be a January 6th committee process. Um, so I'm not answering your question. Here's why I don't want to answer your question. This is very unusual. Typically, if you've got a big case like this and a case that crosses state lines, it's much easier for federal prosecutors to do the case, right? They have better resources than Fonnie Willis, who's going to have to get Dave Ehrenberg, the, the district attorney in you know Palm Beach or the state attorney in Palm Beach, Florida, to help her extradite her defendant if she charges from Mar-a-Lago. I mean, that's crazy. This is the kind of case where the federal government should be leading the charge. A and it's a little bit troublesome to me that the responsibility fall on the shoulders of state district attorneys to vindicate the interests of the American people when a former president tried to cheat and steal an election. That That's troubling. So all that to say, uh, it's, it's a little bit mm. mysterious. Will we see some sort of alignment between Fonnie Willis and the feds down the road? I don't know. Um, there are a lot of unanswered questions here about how this investigation has proceeded. You, you bring up a question I remember asking uh, my reporters when I was an editor if we could figure out. Um, but I mean, could you end up in a standoff where uh, the Florida governor refuses to let, uh, you know, uh, one of his citizens be extradited to another state because of the uh, uh, criminal prosecution. Just uh, is there any sort of Florida versus Georgia kind of a standoff that could end up happening? Oh, it's such a fascinating question. I mean, you know, there's a big difference between can DeSantis try it and will it succeed? I think no, ultimately it wouldn't succeed. It would break down the interstate agreements on defendants. But there's an interesting political twist here. You're the political analyst. I am not. 
Um, but Ron DeSantis is, of course, um, all but declared as a candidate against Donald Trump. You got to believe he's secretly, quietly cheering Fonnie Willis on. You got to imagine a number of the Republicans on that uh, stage are all feeling the same way. Like if this is the way to take out uh, or not take out, but literally uh, have justice uh, be brought upon someone for for actions in the past. Yeah, it's no doubt. Everyone's probably wondering whether this will will knock Donald Trump out of the race. Let me ask you this. Um, there was another aspect, another story. I remember uh, we wrote at Insider a couple, maybe almost two years ago, thinking about it. Now it's kind of funny, but the, the notion of Donald Trump convicted and yet elected president of the United States and could he serve in office? And, and the answer was basically we learned he kind of could. Uh, Secret Service protection in federal prison. Uh, I mean, how crazy is that notion? It's all crazy. I mean, it's just crazy, right? It's just crazy. And the responsibility for this should be placed squarely on the leadership of the Republican Party that refused to put a stop to it when they could have without all of this damage to the country. They could have, for instance, um, agreed to vote for impeachment following the insurrection, which was sort of a no-brainer given what many of them said publicly at that point in time. And that would have spared us much of what has followed, this nightmare over prosecution. Um, it will be a mess. It will be a mess with constitutional dimensions, not a crisis, because frankly, if Donald Trump is prosecuted and convicted, that will be a good sign that our democracy continues to function and that our institutions um, are strong enough to deal with someone as far out on the fringes as Trump, you know, which is an, I think an ongoing question for many of us who study democracy, are our institutions strong enough to hold? Um, but there will be a lot of litigation, a lot of issues about custody or not. Um, you know, I think maybe people would be very unhappy if Trump um, aimed in home confinement at Mar-a-Lago to serve a sentence. Probably that would make the Secret Service happiest and do the least to expose whatever it is that Trump retained from the president's daily briefings in his head to protect that stuff from seizure in a prison setting, which is sort of a national security nightmare. Um, just a whole lot of unresolved crazy mm. issues here. Sometimes, I mean, I'm just thinking at the end of the Clinton uh, presidency, there was the deal that was cut um, right on, I think, the last day of the Bill Clinton presidency. Uh, you know, he loses his law license and an agreement not to prosecute over the uh, Monica Lewinsky uh Ken Starr investigation materials. I mean, do you think there's a possibility of a deal at the very end of this? Uh, you know, Donald Trump walk out uh, the door, you know, don't run for office again, go play some golf in Mar-a-Lago, but, you know, leave the political stage uh, and avoid. I know I'm kind of pr projecting ahead here, but could you see this ending in a deal of some kind? So, look, my personal view is that the time for that deal expired on January 6th, if not earlier. And doesn't Bill Clinton look so quaint? The whole Monica Lewinsky issue looks so quaint um, in hindsight. Boy, the Republicans were so concerned about what Bill Clinton did. Um, the hypocrisy on full display there, I just think, is unfathomable. And, and although, you know... Um, Something somebody said to me recently is that when it comes to protecting democracy, engaging in both sidesism is sloppy. It's convenient. It makes us feel good, right? I mean, I'm a Democrat, so I always bend over backwards to be fair and say, well, Republicans are doing X, but Democrats do it too. 
and you know, we are in an era where that's just not always um, true. And it's not always good for us to try to engage in both sidesism. And we need to say that at some point, the singular wrongs that Donald Trump committed against American democracy need to be addressed. They need to be addressed seriously. This is not someone who needs a slap on the wrist and a walk away deal. Not, not as much for Donald Trump as for the future. There is a time where we must take a stance that some are acceptable. This is acceptable. We've been slow to deal with it here, but we're dealing with it. And in the future, the standard. A big part of the problem here is that the existing precedent assumes that a president will act in good faith at the end. Richard Nixon, good faith at the end, turns over the tapes, right? When ordered to do so by a court. Donald Trump will never act in good faith. And our laws in many ways are not set up to deal with that system. So we need to use them fully to the full extent of the law, as prosecutors like to say, to make sure that American democracy survives Trump. Merrick Garland came into and, and President Biden came into this administration talking about restoring independence for the Justice Department. Um, how do you think they're doing so far here two years in, a little bit more than two years in? My view as a U.S. attorney was that if my friends were really pissed off at me six months into the job, I was probably doing things right. Um, and I think Merrick Garland has broad shoulders. He understood that that was going to be the judge or that that was going to be the job. And, and so he, um, I think, is trying to right the ship of democracy. You know, history is going to have to judge whether he gets it right or not. We're just not going to know what he's accomplished until his time in office comes to an end for one thing. But it is very perilous. And, and um, I guess, you know, I've been doing a lot of work on my seminar this week, so maybe I'm wrapped up in teaching at the moment. But something that I like to talk um, with my students about, although the analogy isn't original to me, is that you need to think about American democracy like, you know, do you, do you play card games that you play in hands? My husband and I play hearts. And it's a, it's a game where, you know, you might play 20 hands before you get to the end, right? If you are so intent on winning any one hand that you're willing to break the rules of the game, violate the rules, blow up the whole game just to, to win that one hand, well, the game is over. Um, and that's sort of what American democracy is. We have to be willing to always play by the rules, to follow the rule of law, not to be so intent on winning any one hand that we blow up the game. Well, guess what? You know, Trump, Trump is the kind of guy who's willing to blow up the game to win the hand. Joyce Vance, thank you so much for coming on the show. We just had a, a fascinating conversation. You've given me a number of ideas for future episodes. Look forward to having you back on as well. Thanks so much for joining us on the Love Journalism Show. Thanks. Loved being with you. I'm looking forward to becoming a huge fan of the Substack and the podcast.